Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Any writer will tell you that without pain, there is no art, and without art, there is still so much pain. A constant battle inside their soul is being waged as they are drawn to express their deepest inner fears in hopes of taking this torturous disposition and using it to create something much bigger than the individual who presses the ink to the paper. Writing, like any other creative outlet, can offer an escape from the monotonous daily grind and can allow the writer to release what is eating them up inside and show the reader that they are not alone. Today on the Spent the Rant podcast, we are joined by Eugene, Oregon writer F.J. Goldner. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Self-Esteem Boat Willie. My guest today is local underground writer F.J. Goldner. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So a little backstory. Uh, you and I had met on social media. I'm not exactly sure because there was a, there's been a lot going on with this podcast. And you had reached out to me and said, hey, I'd love to be a guest. And I pretty much gave it about 10 minutes thought and then was like, hey, let's do that. And yeah. then we worked on the details later. I wasn't familiar with your work. Since you've given me a couple copies of your books, and I, I'm not a, a big reader, but I went camping and I read some of them. And once I realized they were short stories, I was all over it. <laughs> and we're going to get to that in a minute about how, you know, for a lot of your audience is people that are not, you know, novel readers or, or big, big, thick book readers, because you're, it's a good, you can start and read in like maybe 10 minute increments and then put it down, you know, like right. a daily, whatever. So that's really cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's just go right after it, uh, to start out what, you know, what got you into writing? You started writing when you were about 17. Yeah, I actually, I think I was about 15. The first time I, I, uh, wrote for publication. Um, and I've been writing ever since. Right. Uh, and, and when it first started, was it something that just kind of like doodling? You just kind of grab pen and paper and it just started hitting? I actually went to go see, uh, it, it was a concert. It was a, an Iron Maiden Quiet Riot concert. Right. Uh, and I came home and I wrote a story about what I saw. And, oh, and cool. It was my first show. So, uh, and that was the beginning of it. And this was in New York. So you were born mm -hmm. in New York, right outside New York City. Yes. And. You know, we're going to get to it in a little bit. You've lived in France for a while mm -hmm. and, and some of your party days and then settled on Oregon. What is it that brought you to Oregon? Uh, my wife is originally from here, um, Dallas, Corvallis area, and uh, she wanted to get back to the West Coast. She was sick of the East Coast. Right. <laughs> and uh, I was ready to go, too. Right. And I mean, once you roll in 
and you see the landscape, it's like, you know, what am I doing anywhere else? Yes. You know, and it's I gorgeous. mean, the West Coast has its issues. You know, obviously you got the earthquakes going on right now and everything's pretty scary, but uh, it is beautiful here. And I mean, people complain about the rain, but I think it's worth every, you know, it's like it's July and my grass is still green. Absolutely. You know? So um, one of the things about your writing that anyone that's unfamiliar, we're going to put links to how your website, there's links to how to buy it. You can also buy it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the compensation? good though or is it better if people buy it straight through your website straight through the website so go go to fjgoldner.com and and if you're uh listening or watching we're doing video for the second time today so if you're watching this hey thanks for doing that and if you're listening and would like to watch you can go to strpod.com which is my website strpod.com slash video and uh you can find the video clip for this but in the show notes anywhere you're you're listening or watching this there's going to be a link to to your uh your website and it's got you know where you can buy audio books or the hard copy do you do you have hard copy books still sure okay mm-hmm. cool so uh you do a lot of touring and doing readings across the country mm-hmm. uh why don't you speak on that a little bit what is that like and where's like a hot spot that you like to go i mean do you obviously back to new york i'm sure you still have family and stuff mm-hmm. so it's an excuse but go mm-hmm. ahead and speak on that yeah new york and uh new jersey uh, Philadelphia was really like the tri-state area that I was uh, moving around in. And uh, I also did, you know, several readings in upstate New York, uh, right next to the Canadian border. I lived up there for a while. Uh, right. And uh, But the best one that I that I ever did was at a place called uh, uh, Bindlestiff Books. In, right. In, uh, I thought it was a great name, too, in uh, Philadelphia. Right. Uh, and that went over really well, and they had like a every you know it was like a cheese plate and wine oh, and wow. all these people and it was really good are you finding that it's you've been in, in oregon now for three years are you finding that it's kind of taken off here or is it easier for you to kind of get more people to show up outside of the area it takes a little while to get things going when you move to a new place so right. now is the time so right. when you contacted or when we contacted each other about the the podcast i was like yes because this is the time that i wanted to start right. launching everything in in the one on the west coast and that's kind of what i try to do is you know the basic general theme of the podcast is that it's stories that reflect the underrepresented so someone like yourself now you work too i mean it's not mm-hmm. it's it's your passion, but you have to be realistic and know that you still got to put a roof over your head, guaranteed, you know? Right. And most writers are, that's what we have to deal with. Exactly. And, and, you know, I had a writer before, uh, Kyle Yamada was one of my first guests and he wrote a science fiction novel. Well, he's a teacher at South Eugene high school Mm -hmm. and it's amazing because for him with his time off during the summer, it works out perfectly to where he doesn't, he doesn't have to I mean, he's going to write more, but he, cause he put, he just like, I want to write a book and he just did it. And he, mm-hmm. you know, with his job, it makes sense because he has the time off. Uh, what is it that you do for work? I work in the, uh, mental health realm. Right. Um, and right now I'm working at a secure facility for persistently mentally ill right. folks. And you've done a lot of different jobs. You also worked, you told me as a bartender, oh, yeah. which is also mental health. Yeah, <laughs> that's for so, sure. So we're going to get to that in a minute about how you have a history. Also, you had told me off air that uh, you've worked as a abuse counselor, like a, a substance abuse counselor, and you have your own history with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And you're pretty open with that, which I d- definitely resonated with me because I've been sober for over three years now. And it's something that I share on social media because I know that it makes a huge impact. And, and really what drives, I'm sure you can relate, what drives 
I'm open because when someone tells me you've inspired me, that makes me know that I'm, I can push along, you know? And so it's something that we, you know, alcoholism started out as a social thing for me where I was drinking and then it became something I was just doing by myself. And then that's when it became, it was taking me out of being social. And that's the only reason I did it in the first place. So it was like, this has got to go. Right. So your work as an abuse counselor and, you know, battling with alcohol and depression, that is paramount in your work, in your writing. Mm-hmm. And that's clear. Any Anything that you've read or I've read or anybody that's listening has read, it's clear that that's like a huge motivation. Yes. Uh, yes. Would you say sure. that is depression the cause of your writing or is writing the cause of your depression? Mm, that's a difficult question. Um, I would I would say that if... I would say that if I didn't write, that the depression would be a lot worse. Right. You know? It allows you to manage it. Yes. It's it's a mitigator. Some mm. One of the things that I've known with art, and I'm more of a musician, or re- I call myself a recording artist because I'm terrible live, but 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 uh, <laughs> one of the things that I know is, is that when you take something painful, like I've had a lot of mental health struggles in my family, namely with my mom, where she had a lot of issues with depression and PTSD and some other stuff from childhood abuse. And when I take those painful moments in my life and I make it into something in the form of art, like music or whatever, writing, it allows me to take a positive from that negative and it gives me strength. And mm-hmm. is that something you can relate to? That, Absolutely. That the writing, it's like, you almost like, look at that, even though it's the darkest, craziest thing and your friends think you're cr- a lunatic and, <laughs> and they're like, but look at that though. Look what I just did with it, yes. you know? So that's something that's really powerful. Yes. So I guess that answers my next question when you say that it's a little of both. Is it right? Is writing rewarding or is it necessary evil? Um... I wouldn't. I wouldn't really call it a, you know, an evil. But it, I have to do it. Right. If I didn't, if I didn't do it, then I don't know where my head would be. Right. Uh, so it's something that I've been doing for so long, and I had stopped doing it when I was in the full throes of alcoholism. Right. And uh, that was compounding the problem. You know, uh, once I stopped drinking. Uh, then I was ready to go again. Sure. You know, and that's another question that's difficult. So you say that you're ready to go. It was more, you were at better at writing when you were not using. Yes. See a lot of times people that have creative outlets, the abuse with drugs and alcohol can kind of sometimes fuel this artistic expression. And, you know, it's like karaoke. Everyone thinks they're a better singer when they're drunk, which is not true. Right. You know, and I, and you know, some people like Keith Richards, for example, there's always the joke, like if he quits doing drugs, he's probably going to die, yeah. you know, you know, but for me, my music was definitely better, but I wonder because a lot of it has to do with my age at the time that I was at, I think you're the most passionate between like, you know, 17 and 24 mm-hmm. and you're finally discovering this self truth about all this different kind of stuff mm-hmm. that's then finally flowing out because you have maybe the leg to stand on for the first time to where, you know what I mean? Right, so, right, right. So, uh, we were going to do a reading. Um, so the first book that you wrote mind screams, what is a mind scream? Um, I, I believe that I, I got the, the, that was the beginning of it. It was the title. It was like, why, you know, the, what is the, the, thing that happens in my head 
when I get these ideas. And that's basically what it is. It's uh, it, my mind begins to scream until I put it down on paper. Right. And you so know? you'll be driving or shaving or whatever. And I have to stop doing what I'm doing and get it jotted down at least. So Hence do you... The pen right, is the always, pen. right? You know, there. We're, and then you've got a little pad or something, or yeah, just, or just I grab whatever you, know, napkins, you got, napkin, all sorts of stuff. Have you ever done the um, voice recorder, or is it all writing? I've done that, but mostly writing. Yeah, right. I yeah. guess with that's kind of more music and tone. You know what I mean when it comes to the recorder. Uh, so, I mean, I think. So that we don't go too far off base. We're going to go all over the place after the reading. We're going to just kind of let the conversation flow. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted the reader or the the listener to get a a feel for what it is that you do. So it's funny because it makes me look lazy, but I had picked the Soul Stealer as Mm -hmm. the one that I wanted you to read because I feel like it's... It kind of displays your your work really well, but it's the first one. It's the first short story in Mind Screams, so it's pretty easy to get to. Uh, Now, real quick, you do mostly write short stories, Mm -hmm. and when you write each one, are they released chronologically, or as as far as the order? Because if you if you look in the book, you know the first short story may be three pages, the next one might be two sentences. Are they done chronologically, or is there kind of a sense of flow, or is it just you? I have to work on the flow after I get the first draft done, right? And then uh, that's a big, uh, uh, like a, I forget what the word is. Um, uh, I forget. <laughs> right, and it just kind of. It's kind of like picking the track lists for an album that later on, there's this weird sense of how it should go. Right, right. You know, and I'm sure you obviously- know. Yeah, and there's a grand finale, I'm sure, that somewhat. And, you know, because I've noticed the little bit that I did read, I noticed that there is a flow that starts painting a picture, a tone mm-hmm. kind of, so to speak, yeah. of where it's heading and what what's kind of- eating you up inside and whatnot. So let's just sure, get to it. Let's sure. go ahead and do Mind Scream. So this is a, a reading, F.J. Goldner, uh, Mind Screams, and the section, what, what do you call them? Each It's not chapters, if it's short stories. No, it's just... Just uh, a collection of short stories. That's it, collection. So this is uh, F.J. Goldner. The book is called Mind Screams, and the, coll- and the short story is called The Soul Stealer. All right. The Soul Stealer. The box is evil. I looked down at the four words I had just written and shivered. I wasn't sure if I could write another word, but my pencil was drawn back to the page and I began writing. Slow at first, gradually quickening until everything became a furious scrawl. It looked as though a doctor had gone haywire with his prescriptional handwriting. I don't remember the exact technical name for this hideous device. I replaced it long ago with a name that suits the almost mystical effect it has had on my life. I know it only as the Soul Stealer. A buddy of mine brought it over as a token of his friendship. He had just been through a bitter divorce, and he wanted to thank my wife and I for the support we had given him throughout. He told us to beware of the unusual pull that the box seemed to possess. At the time, I thought it rather odd for him to have said this, but now I understand perfectly. I also understand that he escaped it, and I did not. Years before, I had removed a similar box from my home simply because it was a distraction. I was a writer by trade, and I could not afford to be distracted from my work. But I was younger then and obviously stronger. It began to control my life this time around. It was as if this box reached out an invisible arm, plunged it deep inside of me, and shut off some kind of internal emotional circuit breaker. 
I became apathetic towards my work and my wife. Nothing mattered more than the box. Religiously, I sat before it and stared. It was stealing things from me, my language, my vocabulary I had worked so hard to build. Thousands of words, maybe millions, were being bulldozed out of my mind, brick by brick, word by word. My wife left me. I hardly noticed. The box was all that mattered. The box was a godsend. It was doing many things for me. It was doing everything for me. The box was holding before me all the mysteries of the world. I didn't even have to move. The box was I, and I was the box. It was all I could be. I was imprisoned. I suppose I was found by the same friend who had given me the soul stealer. I don't know what kind of shape I was in when he found me, but I can pretty much form a mental picture. I do believe I am slowly recovering from my bout with that terrible thing, and slowly but surely I think I'm becoming a writer again. I put my pencil down and smiled. Suddenly I heard the door to my room being opened. A young black man that I vaguely recognized as an orderly was wheeling what appeared to be my new roommate into the room. Good, I thought. I hadn't had a roommate for quite some time. The young orderly helped my new roommate into his bed and left. For a long time, there was a still silence as neither one of us made any attempt at speech. I studied my new roommate's face for a few minutes and felt as though I had seen him somewhere before. He turned and looked directly at me. His gaze seemed lost and empty. Then I realized it was the friend who had given my wife and I the box, the soul stealer. I trembled slightly, and then the old friend roommate spoke. In a cold, dark whisper, he said, How did you like the television set I gave you? I did not answer. Instead, I wrote four words in neatly printed block letters. The television is evil. That's awesome. And that's that one. So when I read that, I was like, no, this is good. Because, <laughs> the, the, and that's why, uh, the big reason I wanted you to read that one specifically, not just to show how lazy I am, it's literally, it's literally <laughs> the first page of the book, but is it shows the big reveal, you know, and a lot of what you write about, it kind of, it leaves you thinking, like, what was that? Where was that going? Which is good. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? But that one, it's like, it punches you right in the mouth and it has this dark kind of societal um, overview. Like you're, a lot of what you write shows a kind of uh, take on like the darkness in society. I mean, and you know, when we had started talking, you had told me that your writing was kind of like underground punk rock writing, you know, right. or, or in that, and that kind of thing. So, so if you, if someone were to ask you what it is you do, what would you say? I think it's, uh, it's the punk DIY ethic. You know what I mean? Because uh, I, I published uh, Mind Screams and Escape the Landscape, my first two books, with a publisher in um, Baltimore, Maryland. And their, their budget for unknown writers for promotion and stuff like that is next to nothing. Right. It's basically nothing. So sure. you have to do it all yourself anyway. So then I, start, I put out the third, um, fourth, and fifth books uh, by myself. You know, and I just put from start to finish, um, we released them all, and they did far better than the first two. Right. Uh, because of the, the readings and the traveling and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the passion right. that, that I put into it. Right. You know, and you'd also have less, 
people to make excuses of why it's not working right. you just have to take it upon yourself that's the beauty of doing it yourself is that you're like if it doesn't work it's my fault and i can change it instead of being like is that good enough and then someone's like no and then you get discouraged right instead right. of just going right back to the drawing board and wiping everything off and doing it over again mm-hmm. that's kind of what's driven me as far as doing things myself like having the podcast there's such a i don't have a producer you know i sit here do everything myself and if i want to if I want, I'm in a couple groups on Facebook and they're, they'll say, people will be like, Should, is it okay if I change the topic of my podcast? I'm like, it's yours. Yeah. Do whatever the hell you want. That's right. You know? <laughs> so that's the beauty of it. Um, now, Amazon is, you can't talk to a writer in today's world and not touch on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Is Amazon something that has helped or hurt you when it comes to getting your word out? I believe they've helped. More, I would think so, too. More than hurt. Um, you just have to have... You can't have that elitist idea in your head that I'm right. not using Amazon right. no matter what, you know? Because then you're you're hamstringing yourself, basically. And uh, it's the ease of access. Yes. That is just... I mean, you know, it's like you had given me the book, and then I was at work, and it was funny because it was in my backpack. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I just kind of want to have my phone out. And I literally pulled it out on Amazon because if you have, remember this, if you have Prime, Amazon Prime, you can get like a certain amount. Oh no, I think it costs money, like 10, you can check books out. Right. And I think it's 10 bucks a month. So that's a bonus thing added to it. Exactly. But I mean, you can add that to your library and it's pretty, pretty sweet. Now, now the ease of, of access for people is there, but the finances, I guess once you upload it, as an audiobook, you just get a notification saying someone bought it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how does that work with that? Like if someone's a subscription based, if they check it out, do you get compensated? Yeah. Um, it's a it's fr- minimal amount. Sure. It's a pittance. You know what I mean? But it it, it is whatever. Right. You know, I'm just trying to get the word out there. That's uh, the tough thing because I know that with musicians, that's like Spotify, you know, you get fractions of a penny for each play. Mm-hmm. When it comes to literature, it's difficult because if they read it and then they never pick it back up again and you're getting fractions, you know, it's in order to make it work, you have to sell millions yes. of those little downloads. And Hence so, the full-time job. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you know, you know, and so that, that part is difficult. You know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, I, again, you know, Kyle Yamada and I had talked about the Amazon world and how it's basically helped and hurt independent artists. The one thing I think is really good is the fact that you can be self-published. And even if you never print a hard copy book, you could have stuff out there. Do you have anything that you, would you ever release something that would never be in hard copy or is it, are you too, are you like for me with, with music, I still like to print CDs even though yeah. no one wants to buy them yep. because it gives this hard copy. Yeah. I like, I like having a hard copy. It's, it's, I'm old school that way too. And at your readings, it's gotta be like, this is the one thing where independent artists, it's different that at your readings, people probably want to buy that book because they might, they're like, I might not be able to find this later. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I, And it's the same thing with the CD that people are like, I want to buy this. I'll probably just rip it to my computer or find it on Spotify, but I want it for my collection because A, they want to show a token of their appreciation. Mm-hmm. And B, it's like, you can't just get it anywhere. 
You know, I mean, that's the cool thing about a lot of underground artists is that it is hard to find them. And there's that obscure, like, record store style experience. And then you got the, you know, the website there. So that's, that's a huge plus. Which is a good one, fjgoldner.com. The the link is going to be in the show notes. We definitely need you to check that out. And so, you know, real quick too, I want to touch on my title sponsor is Oregon Cashflow Pro, which for anybody that is, is an independent artist like us, we know that you have to make money management choices. So I'm going to plug that real quick. A couple big websites, fjgoldner.com and then oregoncashflowpro.com is, is where you're, if you're looking to make some good financial decisions. So what is, uh, what is your fascination, fascination with jumping off of buildings? I've noticed in, <laughs> in a lot of your, in a lot of your work, in the little bit that I've read, there's like four or five references in you know the first thirty pages to jumping off of buildings. I just I I think it's a New York thing. Yeah, you know? well that makes sense. <laughs> but it 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 also just intrigued me as that would be the choice, right? Uh, you know, for someone to make in their deepest darkest moments of depression, right? To uh, try to basically fly, <laughs> you know, and and they find out very quickly that they can't fly. Right. Know? And there's um, like a liberation to it almost until yes. it's over kind yeah. of thing. And I get that. And it's funny. I, I They must be a big city thing because in Oregon, this is dark. But when I was in high school, the way that, you know, we had that dark conversation, how would you kill yourself? And I said, two sharpened number two is up my nose and slam my head on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that was the nauseating feeling of high school, you know, just in shock and all that stuff. That but, just gave me an idea for uh, a story right there. There you go. Right there the you bat. go. They come, they come in weird places. No, but, uh, you know, I battled with depression. And when people, I know that with art, with literature, suicide isn't always about that it's about different things it's about revenge it's about i have a song about that called eye for an eye where it's it's revenge but when you listen to the whole song it's revenge on yourself is what is what the song is about but uh you know it it has an artistic poignant throughout history in literature there's been this kind of artistic attitude about suicide i mean look at romeo and juliet yes i was just thinking of the same thing you know that there's this artistic outlet with it which is Obviously, 13 Reasons Why, the show. I don't know if you're familiar or if you watched it. It's a TV show that was aimed at teenagers that's all about suicide. And it paints this really dark, glamorous kind of thing. And that's it's difficult with suicide because it's so fascinating because the finality of it. Mm -hmm. But I don't, you know, I just read that in, in that little snippet when I saw... There was a few references yeah. to jumping off of buildings. That has to be why. That ha- is the big city thing. I think it, I think that's definitely it. So, total segue, uh, weird transition here, but I wanted to ask you about your family life. Uh, you have seven kids. Yes. So, talk on that. Now, two marriages, and so you can speak on that a little bit. All right. Yeah, I was uh, I was married to a French girl for, for 12 years, and uh, we spent many years in France as well. Um, and I had two boys and a girl. And then my second wife has three girls. And then we had a baby together, baby girl. So, uh, yeah, so all together, it's five daughters and two sons. Oh, man. And what what are the ages range? Uh, from 29, just the other day, to 10. Oh, wow. So yeah. you're not, you've got a lot of work left. Oh, yes. Uh, do they like your work, your, your writing? I only let them look into it in their late teens you know what i mean before that it's a little bit too dark for them to to uh fathom it or to 
connect that with their dad. You know what I mean? Right. So I try not to let anybody read it until they're like 18, 19. Sure. Um, and, but they like it. They, and then they'll pass it around to their friends and stuff like that. And, and their, their friends, friends love it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh man, he's cool. He's, you know, so that's gotta be difficult with, uh, relating to the kids in a way that you really can't share your your business work and your passion work because with mental health I'm sure you do do you talk about your your daily work to them I mean as a young kid not not that much either because my um, mom was a case manager for senior disabled services and mm-hmm. so she shared too much with me when I was a kid and she talked about depression and mental health stuff a lot. And I, I just think there's different rules of thumb. Like there's different approaches to parenting. There's no, there's no real right ways. There's just a lot of wrong ones, sure. you know? And sure. so, and so uh, I just always wonder if that's a smart decision to make kids aware of it at a young age. 10 is too young, but I like, mean, you know, I mean, I, I try to make them aware of it and take the stigma away from right. men, mental illness. Um, and, trying to normalize it for them a little bit like if they see something a person in the street like talking to themselves or something to that effect they'll be like well he's having a little bit of a hard time right now you know uh let let's just all you can do is just hope for the best for him so teaching empathy is is crucial for sure sure. you know and it is it's really important you know i did an episode on suicide prevention and it's really important that we talk about these things openly to where almost to where you can not joke about it but like keep it light so that people don't feel alone. Like that's really what it comes down to because when you feel alone, you know, that's what I touched on in the intro of this episode. Also that when the reader, one of the things that you offer the world is, is that the reader doesn't have to feel alone. And that's one of the reasons why I write, you know, know? one of the strong reasons why I write. So people don't feel like they're alone in there. Right. And it's cool. I mean, there's, there's such a need for niche, dark kind of art because people feel so much pain. And, and there's a lot of people that are antisocial, which is one of the biggest reasons I do the podcast mm-hmm. is there's, I didn't think about this when I started, to be honest, but I've had a couple friends that have, that are like xenophobians, you know, that have a fear of just the outside world. They basically just lock themselves up and watch Netflix, which sounds like every American, but, <laughs> but, Netflix but they, re- chill. <laughs> yeah, but they reached out and said, you know, what I like about what you're doing is, is that you ask questions that I would want to ask, but I'm not. I'm not going to put myself in a position to do that and right. to meet people from the community so that I can give them a sense of ownership over the community, like meeting people like yourself that they may not bump elbows with and whatnot. So that's really rewarding to me because I am a social butterfly and somebody that likes to meet people, but not always because I get social anxiety just like the next person. Sure. You know? So uh, if a young person told you that they wanted to be a writer, what would you tell them? Buckle up. And get ready for the ride, right? Because it's not an easy, uh, it's not an easy choice. Uh, well, it's not a choice. It's 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 a passion, yeah, so it finds you. Yeah, you're chosen, basically. Uh, you just have to be ready for a lot of rejection, right? Um, you know, you'll you'll wind up. I used to, uh, in my first incarnation as a writer, uh, I wrote till I was about. Uh, 25 years old from about 15 to 25 so 10 years and uh then from 25 to 35 it was just insanity with the with the drinking uh so it was sporadic uh and i wasn't doing it properly and i messed up a lot of things you know i i uh, almost got a publishing contract three book deal through a publisher in philadelphia and uh i wasn't able to to follow up on it because they kept sending me the manuscript back 
for with little uh little corrections to do and whatnot and i was unwilling to do that i was like fuck these people you know and uh i was drinking i was in my cups and i was and every time they sent it back finally i was like fuck that i'll just do it myself and i never did because of the alcohol sure Uh, and uh so you have to be the first thing i would say is don't drink you know yeah that's the toughest thing you know we're talking about parenting like what do you tell the kids when it comes to alcoholism like do you first of all do you believe it's genetic Mm-hmm. You know, so when, when do you tell the kid that, you know, like you might have a predisposition to alcoholism, you know, when do you start to approach that 12, 13, yes. probably right before it's cause 15, 14, 15. I mean, I'm sure for you, for you, when I was 14, 15, I was doing LSD. Oh yeah. Me too. Me too. <laughs> you know? And so 12. let alone drinking, I mean, growing up in Eugene, Oregon, and I'd imagine upstate New York, I've heard upstate New York almost more than in the city. The city's different, you know, but upstate, it's like you, there's a freedom to it. There's like an outdoor element, festivals, obviously mm-hmm. Woodstock, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> you know, you know, festivals I mean, and also just guys hunting with sure. hunting camps and stuff like that. So I've heard upstate New York's basically Michigan, but, but basically <laughs> but, that's but, all it is. Right. <laughs> so, so you have to tell the kid, you know, you might be predisposed to substance abuse and so you need to be aware of those triggers but it's difficult because with teenage i have teenage stepsons and i have to talk to them about like i i want you to live your life though like mm-hmm. that's the difficult challenge that you, you know and i just tell them about how much alcohol it's it's you know that talked about the television stealing your, your your soul right alcohol will definitely do that and like i said before about you know you do it to be social and in the end it it takes that from you. Yes, it takes everything from you. Basically, yeah. and uh, it's not a uh, it's not something that you can beat. You know, the, many many people for years have have thought that they could they were going to be the ones to beat this thing to drink moderately to change the habit. Yeah. Yes, I and, mean I think some I look at it like an allergy in the way that some people aren't don't have allergies, you know, and they can have a drink, you know, for me, I, I have one drink followed by 15 more yeah, break out handcuffs. Right. I That's... fortunately was never arrested. The biggest reason that I was never arrested is I didn't get my driver's license until I was th- two years sober and I was 36 years old. That was smart. <laughs> you know, cause, cause I just, people can think what they want, but living in a town, I'm sure in New York, it's common, yeah. but in a town where we have such a good bus system and transit system, I, I just, I was like, I can get around just fine on my skateboard. And all my friends had get, gotten arrested, you know, and you see that happening that was nonstop. Very, that was very smart because I'll tell you, all the years that I drove, you know, uh, under the influence, I should have had 500 DWIs and sure. I, I didn't even have one. Which is wild. I got lucky. I got lucky, but a lot of them were because of New York um, uh, courtesy cards. Cops would give them to me and you can show them to another cop when he pulls you over. What is it? What is that? It's just called a courtesy card. You can get one from a regular cop. You can get one from a lieutenant, from a captain, and it has their name on it and it's signed. And you can just get out of it's basically a get out of jail free card. Weird. Yeah. And so they're like, we already stopped him for this and it was fine. Yep. Yeah. Dumb. You, you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of people get away with murder but as far as that's concerned. Right. So, uh, Speaking of New York, have you ever had any business dealings with Donald Trump? No, I never have, <laughs> but uh, he is not very high on my, uh, you know. He's uh, not very popular in New York either, you know, no. which is interesting. It, well, it, he, he's, 
he's notorious for not paying his workers. You That's know, what, I, yeah. Um, I'm kind of on that, the, the blue collar level of it. Uh, he doesn't pay his workers and he starts, you know, giant construction projects and he brings the best of the best in to get the work done. They get the work done and then he brings scrubs in for the last quarter and that's how that goes. And then doesn't pay him. And I just, oh my gosh, it drives me, it drives me crazy that the people that supported him are people that pride themselves on independent small business and... I don't know. You yeah. know, it's just, I think it's just gone awry. You yeah. Know what I, mean? I think the big thing, not to get off the point, I think it's almost impossible not to have a conversation without Donald Trump coming in in some way. Yeah. But uh, I think the big days. thing that I've come to the conclusion that with Donald Trump, why it's happening is because Barack Obama had a 90% or whatever number approval rating inside of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And Republicans kept putting these people forward, like Jeb Bush and even Marco Rubio, who's tame compared to some, that were not. They didn't seem tough. They didn't seem like alphas. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. Donald Trump, to a lot of people with no observation skills, they see, (laughs) they see somebody that is tough and, and it's, I don't know. I think people come from a good place with it, but you know, meaning like, like my father is a big fan and I, my dad is not an aggressive person. Mm -hmm. So when he sees somebody like that, I think it, that's not how my dad would talk in business. He thinks so that he it, can get things so, done. And it, yeah, it's weird because my dad has so much ethics and so much of a moral code that he would take a back seat to to finances. Like he'd be like, "I'd rather make less money mm-hmm. and do it with ethics." And he instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. And yet, this guy is the best thing ever. And I think it's because it was so nauseating to see somebody so beloved. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying Barack Obama was good perfect whatever that's not even the point it's the fact that he was so well respected right. across the board i mean you watch him on ellen and afterwards people are like oh yeah you know yeah. you know and now i don't think ellen is gonna be happening yeah you know yeah. i mean judge Shapar, whatever her name is those shows on fox news and that's about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the sit down interviews never go well and yeah i just it's it's very difficult to put a finger on it so to know? be from new york and be because i mean it's been on he's been on your consciousness your whole life yeah you pretty know much since the 80s and know. yeah and then i don't think de blasio is even that popular in new york it's no. kind of interesting he's running for president but so you know back to what we were talking about sorry <laughs> random segue into politics uh i don't read a lot so i was gonna you know a lot of times when people interview an author or writer they ask who do you read so i don't read so that doesn't interest me <laughs> so because if you said it Perkowski, i'd be like that sounds cool but i don't know anything about it right right noam chomsky you know i mean i'm i'm familiar with who and i've watched documentaries about him but i just don't i don't read a lot so what reality television show do you watch <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, I try to stay away from it as much as possible. That's Uh, such a good answer. But is there a guilty pleasure? uh, Below Deck. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, what is that one? It's uh, about these people working on a yacht, and my wife has begun to watch the show, and I watch it uh, as a guilty pleasure every once in a while. Yeah, see, that's the thing. So what what is it that drew drew you in? I mean, obviously, it was just proximity. It's on the TV. Just the, the beautiful, you know, like, they're in the Mediterranean and they're in Greece and, you know, and stuff like that. So, uh, I think the last one was in Yugoslavia and split and it's beautiful there. Oh, so uh, it's more of like a, what channel is it on? Oh, that I don't travel. Know. Maybe. Yeah. I think it's yeah. travel. So is it more of like an Anthony Bourdain or is it pretty clean? 
you know. It's pretty clean. It's pretty yeah. clean. It's, Did, about, have, it's about the infighting between the, the crew. Oh, wow. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those just, shows, it's funny because they're so addictive, those reality television shows. Yeah, they can be. I watch Big Brother, which is just straight trash. But yeah. I think the reason that we enjoy it is because it's like a com- it's like sport almost. They're competing to get voted off and whatnot. But it doesn't matter. It steals, the, your, it steals your soul. It does. It does. <laughs> and, you know... You know, it's funny talking about that. And kids today are like, Haha, we don't watch television. And I'm like, oh, don't kid yourself. You're literally on your phone 24 hours a day. You got a screen. You in just front get of to pick eyes. what you're seeing, but you're still being inundated and being controlled and manipulated by what that is. Yep. You know, and I don't, I don't know. What drives me the most crazy about today with kids is that I don't know if there's a such thing as punk rock because people. People like what they think they're supposed to like. And it's mm-hmm. always been that way. Yeah. But I, I guess, I don't know. That's a whole different animal. But <laughs> so um, you had talked about France. And I know that we were bouncing all over the place. And that's how what happens with the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think you wanted to touch on that, living in France and the craziness that ensued. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was one of the best experiences of my life. That was like my, my college uh and I did an enormous amount of writing over there. Uh, but then after about three years, the alcohol started to get uh, a little bit crazy. And I also delved into uh, um, heroin for, oh, wow. for, a, for a time. And uh, that was not a good addition. Um, right. But, you know, that was kind of my attempt at the expatriate lifestyle. Sure. Uh, going to France and... And I wrote at uh, places like uh, the the Dome and the Coupole, like all these cafes, famous right. cafes in Paris, and uh, Shakespeare and Company and stuff like that. I was there writing there, uh, and I started to get noticed by you know certain people. in when I was in France, one of them was the he his name was uh, Georges Belmont, and he was the translator for F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway, uh, Samuel Beckett. And he said that he had, I had something that he enjoyed reading. So keep going. And I went to go meet him in Paris and uh, went up on an elevator up into his apartment. And the, the, the elevator opened up onto his apartment and there was just books everywhere and stuff. He was like 80 years old at the time. Um, and he kept serving me. I had drank a couple of beers because I was nervous to, to meet him and whatnot. And because uh, he was such a literary light you sure. know, for so long. And uh, uh, he kept serving me little, little glasses of scotch. And then but and we talked for like three hours and it was phenomenal and whatnot. And uh, at the end, he's like, you, you can really do something with this writing, but you're going to have to stop doing something first. Yeah. And, so I stopped, uh, stopped, and it took me years. Sure. To con- what did you do? How did you get out of, I mean, to break the habit and create new habits? Um, for the first two years, I went to AA. Right. Uh, and at first, it, I said similar things that I think I've heard uh, you say and other people on the podcast, that uh, I didn't really want to uh, go to AA. You know, but it was necessary for me. Sure. I had to have something that was like a, a, a routine, you know, right? just like the drinking was. Um, I think for me, the reason, and I've said before, it's, I don't go, but it's not that I, I almost still feel connected. I know. I mean, there's a lot of tough stuff when it comes to recovery because people have to deal with it on their own. 
Okay, but yeah, it's a collective community that without the recovery community, I would still be using. Right. So being that I don't go to meetings, I'm very fortunate that like my life partner, my girlfriend is very involved in the recovery program. Oh, okay. And so I have a meeting every moment of my life That's awesome. where she's there for me that she will, you know, be receptive and whatnot. So, I mean, it's such a difficult challenge. It is. It is. I'm, it's, yeah, I'm proud of you for doing it. Thank you. Yeah. And it, I mean, for me, I'm very lucky that I just had this mindset that will power is something I needed to own again. Mm. And then I needed to take back. And once I made that decision, it took me about three or four months of being a wounded animal, probably a little longer, more like a year and a half of still teetering, but I never went back to take another sip. I'm not going to say that I was completely sober. I mean, I smoked pot and <laughs> other stuff too. Well, I mean, if someone was like, you want a Vicodin? I'd be like, sure. You know, cause it's not a huge issue. I mean, uh, well, it that's, could the, be, that's the main thing. If it's an issue for you, then you shouldn't be and doing it. And it could be. I mean, I'm quite aware that like you start delving into like Percocets and all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, you're doing heroin. Right. I mean, and it's an easy slide. And people joke about what about occasional, you know, go out camping and take some mushrooms. I'm like, oh, hell no. Because right. been there, done that. You get back to the Donald Trump stuff. All I have to do is think about the state of the world and my yeah. mind can't it's handle over. it. I can't even do a dab, you, right. know, you know, because my mind is just too, it, it races too much. Active. So when you were in France, uh, was there a lot of alcoholism? Because I, because this is one of the misconceptions I think Americans think that there isn't. There's an enormous amount exactly. of alcoholism. People That's... say, oh, in other in Europe they can they can drink with dinner, and I'm like, no, dude. Yeah, they, <laughs> like, they drink before dinner, they drink at dinner, they drink after exactly. dinner. Exactly. You know, it's, it's and a it's a part of culture. I think Americans are known for being excessive with everything and that's we go big that's true yeah but it's everywhere people right. are people well know? we go that's the thing that you just said we go big like we we when i was bartending i would drink you know 12 pints and and eight shots you know what i mean and uh that's insane for some people like, right they can't even imagine drinking that much oh that alcohol. doesn't seem shocking to me at all yeah. i used to drink a fifth and then i would go to the bar and yeah. then sometimes i would get cut off and at other bars i remember i was at o'donnell's one time and she was like you've had too much to drink and i'm like okay and i pushed my glass back she goes oh no i'll keep serving you <laughs> i'm just like awesome that sounds, okay that she knew i didn't like drive you. you know that was the thing is i just didn't drive and i think I was relatively harmless. I'm, I've done some very regrettable things, and I still have a Me lot too. of amends to make. You Me know, too. but but uh, you always have amends to make. You know, oh, yeah. there's always it's something. A, it's a constant growth. Well, I want to thank you for coming out, FJ Goldner. Uh, is there anything you want to tell the one? Another thing I wanted to ask you locally: Have you made any any type? connections yet is there a bookstore that you really are are big on locally i do love um uh smith family uh, oh yeah and, that's the uh, best bookstore and uh tsunami tsunami is on one. willamette smith family's on campus yeah. a couple blocks 13th i haven't really connected fully with with any of them but i went to a couple of uh shows and a couple of readings at tsunami so i'm starting to make little connections here and there yeah and it's like open mics you know and and smash poetry that's a different realm but it is it is and but sometimes i'll kind of crash it and i'll do a reading or something like that and it usually goes over pretty well sure i mean um, and that's the thing i think people are open to the art world and they like they like to think they are in eugene and i hope that they're welcoming you know and yeah, yeah so so 
the website is is where there's so much information. FJGoldner.com. Everything's on there. Everything it, you need to know. It's really important that uh, you know you listening or watching at home that you go check that out. And there's you can buy prints uh, of the album cover, the book cover. So if you buy if you want to get an audio book, mm-hmm. but then you want kind of a keepsake or something, and you you know there's no point in buying all three versions. You can uh, you can buy a signed copy, like mm-hmm. a print of the of the cover of the book i think that's really a neat thing to offer and there's links to where to buy the audiobooks and you can listen to samples right on there i was kind of messing around with it and that's really neat mm-hmm. and then remember you can always if you would like to be a sponsor of the podcast you can go to strpod.com slash sponsors once you get to strpod.com there's going to be links to all the different merch you know you got t-shirts and and stickers and all that but then if you'd like to sponsor the podcast to make sure that this thing keeps happening uh any small donation you can click to be a monthly donator which two bucks one dollar whatever you want to do five bucks a month or you can just do a one-time donation and that's what keeps this going and new equipment and this setup will grow and i'll soundproof it and all that good stuff it's a great setup yeah i should see it so i really appreciate you watching and listening and again i want to thank you it's really nice meeting you can i say uh, yes can i say one thing uh i just wanted to throw a shout out to my wife Kay, whom without you know Kay, i would not be able to uh do all the the work that i do uh she's she's always right there uh with supporting me in every way and i'd like to throw a shout out to uh, blair conrad because i was oh, really that she she was an amazing guest here sure. on the podcast and uh, she was actually inspiring to me blair is literally the biggest fan of the show and it's i'm glad you brought her up because without her this show doesn't happen because i would literally continue doing it if she was the only fan <laughs> so and i made a joke a half half-hearted joke someone was like i don't know what your who your audience is and i'm like my audience is blair <laughs> and but, congratulations on the butte to butte race yeah she's killing it in life she's going to be coming back on here soon uh I want to talk to you off air, but I'm going to put you on the spot right now because I want to write a screenplay. And I have this amazing idea that I'm hesitant to tell you because you'll steal it. <laughs> that steal. we need to, I need to have happen. So we're going to have to sit down and maybe, I think you might, it's funny, I'm not a very religious man, but I do believe in God. And I feel like God puts people in your life mm-hmm. that need to be there. And I almost feel like there's a, a reason that I'm being rewarded for the for the good choices, like with alcohol and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. That it's putting it right in front of me, and there's this passionate thing I have. And it's about, I'm not going to get into it too much because it's uh, be dumb, but it's about my early 20s and the pain that I went through. And then we're going to use some fiction in there too. But mm-hmm. So keep your eyes peeled for this. The, it would be about an ex-girlfriend, Ezzy, loosely. But that's all I'm going to say, and and it's it's something that's going to happen. I've been t- I've been kind of tossing that idea around about a screenplay. I definitely want it to be a movie because the visual stuff is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing in your head. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. This hey. has been this has been Thank really you. awesome. I appreciate. Oh, we're gonna break stuff. I oh. appreciate you being here, and uh, we're gonna end the show with a local Eugene punk band, uh, my buddy Jason Burton's band. They're called Not a Part of It, and this is uh, You Are the Program. So nice. not a part of it. You are the program. strpod.com, fjgoldner.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Santa! 